we turn together to the book of Genesis, chapter 7, as we continue here to look at the story of Noah. This morning we'll be looking at Genesis, chapter 7. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains of the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. 
He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Then the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this, your word, that you would guide us, instruct us, and encourage us. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We come now in the book of Genesis, specifically in the book of Noah, the story of Noah, to one of the more interesting stories. And it is interesting that a story as devastating, as difficult, as powerful as this, has in our collective imaginations been the fodder for Fisher-Price toys, Precious Moments dolls, and fuzzy animals. As our children latch onto this story, there is a wonder that comes about the ark and how do you fit all of these animals in the ark? And how did it float? And, and where did it go? When in reality, this story is for adults. It's a story that teaches us many things from God's Word. It's a story that teaches us, first and foremost, about the Bible itself, because it is such a magnificent story. The flood tells us certain things about the Bible. And then secondly, we can look and see what the flood tells us about sin. It speaks to us about sin. And then thirdly and finally, the flood speaks to us. It tells us about God. This story teaches us about the Bible about sin, and about God. It is a grand piece of the tapestry of redemption. Well, let's begin then by looking at what the story tells us about the Bible. The flood is a magnificent story, but it teaches truths that are very basic. The very first basic truth that it teaches us is that the Bible is true. Now, Today, more than ever, we need to say that, repeat that, and shout that from the rooftops, that the Bible is actually true. I stand before you as a man with several graduate degrees, including one in law, who says to you with firm conviction that the flood really happened. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to make up a story. I'm not going to ask you to fantasize with me. There was real rain and real water and real death. The flood actually happened. You see, we have in a sense gotten too wise for ourselves. Our children read this story and they say there was a flood and it rained. And then as we grow up, we are a bit embarrassed by it. We're embarrassed for God. That God would actually talk about all this water and and. What did animals smell like in the ark? That can't possibly happen. But in reality, this is a true story. 
We are the ones today who are arrogant, who think we know what the world would have been like before the flood. The world changes when there's a great disaster, doesn't it? Go out near Austin. Look where the great fire was. You won't recognize areas of it. Go where the the tsunami has hit. Go to Japan where the explosion of the nuclear plant was and you will see that things change. So why would we expect that a worldwide flood would not change the world? And that we might not know everything that we think we know. This is a story that occurs throughout many, many, many cultures. There's a Babylonian flood story. There's a Mesopotamian flood story. There's an Alaskan native flood story. All throughout the world there is a story of a great flood and people surviving through some sort of floating vessel. Coincidence? I don't think so. This is also not a passing reference in the Bible. This is not the only place where this occurs. And it's in great detail. Look at when it happened. When did the flood occur? Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life. No, no. In the second month. No, on the 17th day of that month. How would they know? How would they know exactly what day the flood happened? You remember events like this, don't you? Where were you when 9-11 was announced? You don't need to tell me. But I know you know. Where were you when John Kennedy was assassinated? You know, don't you? These things are indelibly burned into your mind. So how would we not understand that Noah and his sons and his family would not have this event burned into their mind? It was a worldwide flood. I won't apologize for that either. Some say, well, no, it was a localized flood. Just the area between two rivers because then there's not as much water. It's not as fanciful a story. It's not as big of a miracle. But if that's true, how is the flood described in verse 19 as covering mountains to a depth of 15 cubits? What kind of a local flood stays around for 371 days? Because you have to add the 150 of chapter 7 to the other days as the flood recedes. If this were a localized flood, why would you need a massive ark the size of four football fields? Why wouldn't you rather just shoo the animals off to another place? Or count on animals from another place? If this were a localized flood, why would God use it to promise that he would never destroy the world again? You see, the flood teaches us that the Bible is true and that safety is found in believing that. Be careful what you say, because if you say this is a story, then you make the Apostle Peter a liar. Because he says there was a flood. You make the author of Hebrews a liar because he says there was a flood. And worse yet, you make the Lord Jesus Christ a liar because he says in Matthew 24 and again in Luke 17 that there was a flood. Be careful where this takes you. The flood tells us about the Bible. It tells us that the Bible has a purpose because you see, there's so many things that's missing from this story, isn't it? 
This is a good example of the Bible and its laser focus because there's so many things we'd like to know. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. I'd like to know about the meteorology. I would like to know, how did all the rain come? How much per day? Was it a dump or was it a steady downpour? It doesn't tell us about the geology of the situation. What happened to the dirt? Was it displaced? Were there rocks? There are so many questions that we would ask that the Bible doesn't answer for us. Where did all the water come from? Where did it all go? What happened when salt water mixed with fresh water? These are questions that are good, but the Bible doesn't find them to be ones worth answering. Because you see, the Bible's purpose and focus is like a laser beam. It is about redemption. You see, we know nothing exactly about how the water came in its amounts, but God tells us not once, not twice, not three times, but four times about the threat of destroying the world. In chapter 6, verse 7, verse 13, verse 17, and again in chapter 7, verse 4. The threat is repeated four times. There is a great emphasis on the judgment that will come on all. Look at the end of the chapter. In verse 21, all flesh died, all swarming things, all mankind, everything on the dry land, everything that was there, all were blotted out from the earth. You see, what God wants us to know, He repeats. There's a focus here. There's even a little detail that helps us to understand the grand scheme of redemption. Noah takes two kinds of animals into the ark. He takes clean animals and he takes unclean animals. You'll note that he takes more of the clean animals so that he might sacrifice afterwards. We will see that in weeks to come. But perhaps you asked yourself, how does Noah take clean animals when clean animals aren't described until the book of Leviticus? How did he know? How did he know about sacrifice? How did he know about this from the Lord? And the answer is God has always been telling his people about redemption and sacrifice. It didn't begin on Mount Sinai. It didn't begin in the upper room. The Bible is the story of God's redemption. But the Bible also talks to us, not just, uh, the flood also talks to us, not just about the Bible, but about sin itself. It tells us two main things about sin. And again, they're very basic truths that we need to believe and act on. You don't need a PhD to understand these. The first is that sin is destructive. The second is that sin is deceptive. So, sin is destructive. This should be obvious from a story about the flood. But it even precedes the flood. You see, one of God's complaints against the people on the earth was that they were destroying His creation. It was filled with violence because of them. They were destroying each other, destroying animals. There were acts of terror and violence because of their sin. Sin was so widespread that there were no boundaries to hem them in anymore. But sin was also destroying something else. This is something that we see all the time. Sin destroys our humanity. 
doesn't it? We're made in the image of God. But sin mars that. It erases it. It scribbles over it. How many times have you said to yourself when reading a newspaper or watching the news, that's not a man, that's a monster. Anybody that could do that is a monster. They ought to lock him up and throw away the key. Better yet, they ought to put him out of his misery. How could a woman possibly do that? That's inhuman. You see that all the time, don't you? I don't have to relay any of the details for you. You see, that's what sin does. It takes us out of being human. It takes the compassion out of us. It takes the love out of us. It takes the obedience out of us. And it turns us into monsters. Sin is destructive. And we see here sin is also destructive to the earth because you see the judgment that comes on earth doesn't just come upon the bad sinners. It comes and wipes out every living thing that is not in the ark. Fido, Felix, and Mr. Ed all pay for the sins of humanity. They are all wiped out. Polly the parrot is no more. Flipper the dolphin is destroyed by the deluge. You see, sin has consequences. And this is what happens even in our own lives. We are mistaken if we think we can nourish sin and it will not affect our marriage. That we can nourish sin and it will not obliterate our children, our businesses, our nation. Sin cannot be held close to the breast without it being destructive everyone around us. But sin is also deceptive. This is something that we need to learn. You see, Noah preached, the Bible tells us, for 120 years about the coming judgment. And I like to think that perhaps he would preach to them historically at times. He would remind them of his ancestor, Adam, who died but a century before Noah was born. He would remind him of Adam's sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, who would still be alive. And he would say, do you remember the day when we lived in paradise? Do you remember when everything was perfect? Do you remember those stories? That was true, and it could be true again, but we must repent. But you see, people forgot about that. They forgot about the devastation of the murder of Abel. They forgot about the devastation of polygamy. They forgot about the rejoicing of Lamech in violence. And this is no different than we are, is it? What happened after the war to end all wars? About a hundred years ago now. Devastation. I read an article that in one battlefield in Belgium... More men died than in the entire civil war in a period of a week. And the world turned right around and upped the ante and had World War II. Did we learn from that? I don't think so. There's war and devastation going on now. You see, sin deceives us. We think we have it under control. We think we're smarter. We think we know, but we don't. 
You see, they ignored the warnings of Noah. This was not like the tsunami. You recall when that earthquake happened in the Pacific? And the tsunami came and devastated nations and killed hundreds of thousands because no one knew it was coming. This was not the early warning system of a day or a week or a month or a year. For 120 years, Noah warned them. What was their response? Who needs God? Come on, Noah, you crazy old coot. Come on. You've been talking this way for 20 years. There's no rain. We've never even seen rain. We're getting along just fine. We're rich. We've got music. We've got industry. Noah, why do you have to be such a downer all the time? And and you know what, Noah? Even if you were right, you said 120 years, we got plenty of time. We could party till the last minute. Why, Why should I follow God now? I can wait 119 years. You see, isn't often that our attitude? We think we're in control. We think we know God's timing. We think we can do better without God. And then what happens is what happened to those who were outside the ark. They watched all of the animals come in. They watched Noah and his sons go in. They watched the wives go in. And then they saw the door to the ark shut. For the first time in 120 years, there was no sawing. There was no hammering. There was no open door. For seven days, Genesis 7 tells us, for seven days there was quiet. And then there was darkness. There were clouds gathering. And then a drip. And then a downpour. And then a flood came up. Water upon water. Ankles to the knees, to the chest, to the chin. Houses began floating. Animals floated away. People tried to swim. They could not swim. They tried to hang on to the ark. They tried to pound on the ark. They said, Noah, let us in now. Now we know. Please save us, Noah. And there was silence. There was no hope. There was judgment. For 120 years they had mocked God. God will not be mocked. I challenge you with that this morning. Are you mocking God in your heart? Are you saying just one more week of this sin, Lord? Oh, Lord, I'm not sure if you're true. I'm not sure if the Bible is right. There will come a day when the ark will be closed. It is hard to think of, but there will come a day when the cross will not save again. It will only condemn. Sin is deceptive. It makes us think we have more time. The Bible, sin, but the flood also speaks to us about God. It tells us that God is, first and foremost, a judge. The Lord does not judge by halfway measures, does He? He saw this wickedness that was throughout the earth and He sent overwhelming waters. Look at the text here that's described 
beginning in verse 18. And the waters prevailed. That means they overwhelmed. They oppressed. And they increased greatly. In the Hebrew, that's very, very. They very, very prevailed. And again in verse 19. And again in verse 20. And again in verse 24. These waters prevailed. They overwhelmed. There was no hope. All living flesh was blotted out. Everything was exterminated. You might translate the Hebrew word in verse 23. It was as if God had undone creation. He had taken the great deep that is described in Genesis 1 verse 2. And it had torn open with violence. The same kind of violent word that's used in describing the Red Sea. How it was torn asunder that the Hebrews might go through. And a great flood came down because you see, great sin requires great judgment. God saw this sin. He had been patient. For hundreds of years he had been patient. For hundreds of years he had warned, but his patience comes to an end. We must understand that there is a judgment. For as Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. God is a judge. But the flood tells us something else. Something else we might not expect in the midst of being buried by water, in the midst of washed away by rivers and oceans. The flood tells us that the Lord is gracious. Because you see, He preserved Noah and his family. Forty days and forty nights it rained. That word forty should seem familiar to you. It occurs a lot in the Bible. It's a period of testing. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Goliath mocked the Israelites for 40 days and 40 nights. And so Noah too was tested for 40 days and 40 nights, wondering if the rain would stop, wondering if God's promise would come true. And you see, Noah was saved because he believed God. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark. This word go can also be translated come. Come into the ark. It reminds us of Isaiah 55 where the Lord says, Come unto me those who thirst and those who hunger and I will give you to eat and drink. For no price. It reminds us of what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy burdened. Come and I will give you rest. It's what the Bible says at the end in Revelation 22. It says come unto me and be saved. You see... In the midst of judgment, the Lord is calling to Himself a people. And the same waters that bury the wicked lift up the ark. Because God is gracious. There is a judgment to come. Peter tells us that that judgment will not be by water. It will be by fire. But the ark is so much more bigger. I know that's not proper grammar. But it is so much more bigger. 
Noah was saved with seven. But the cross calls to itself from every nation. Jesus Christ is the ark of salvation for those who believe on Him. Today is the day for you to believe on Him. Not tomorrow. Not next Thursday. Not September 28th. Today. Today is the day for you to trust Him even more. If you have placed your trust in Him, it is to give Him wholeheartedly your life. To follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, what has been given to Noah and what will be given to those who trust Christ is more than we deserve. Noah deserved to perish with the others. But because God gave him grace, and he believed the Lord, he was saved. What about you? Will you embrace that grace that God gives to you in the day of judgment? In that final day of reckoning, will you come and say, Lord, it is only for what Jesus did that I should live. Don't look at my church attendance. Don't check my checkbook. Don't look at how many little old ladies I walked across the street. Don't look at how many slip knots I tied. Look at Jesus. That's where we are called to look. Because you see, when that door of the ark shut and Noah was saved forever, God didn't say, Noah, make sure you shut the door tight. Have your sons throw the deadbolt. It says the Lord shut the door. It is God who saves. We are to learn from this text that we have perfect security in Jesus Christ. He is the ark that is shut up by God by which we are saved. We also learn that there is a figure of Noah's flood. An example. A story of the flood. It's a story that we saw this morning. Because you see, Peter says, our baptism is like the flood. It is waters by which we are promised to be saved. The flood is still before us in a story. Because God is great in His grace. Seek Him out. Trust Him with all that you are. Know the blessedness of forgiveness in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You this morning that You have given to us this Your Word, that we might know that You indeed, O Lord, are magnificent. You indeed, O Lord, are Savior. You indeed, O Lord, are our God. Lord, we ask this morning that You would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might find all our sufficiency in Him. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.